Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Real Science Exchange, the podcast where leading scientists and industry professionals meet over a few drinks to discuss the latest ideas and trends in animal agriculture. Tonight, we continue our discussions with the authors of each chapter of the new uh, NASM, formerly known as the Dairy NRC. We're focusing on dry cows, transition cows, calves, and heifers for our conversation tonight, and it should be a lively one. Hi, I'm Scott Sorrell, one of your hosts here at the Real Science Exchange. Tonight, we're welcoming doctors Jim Drakeley, Bill Weiss, and Mike Vonderhaar. Each were highly involved in one or more of the aforementioned chapters. Gentlemen, welcome to the exchange. Uh, Bill, you've been here at the exchange a few times now. Now, the last time, as I remember, you were drinking a local brew from just across the river. So what's in your glass tonight? I stayed on this side of the river this time. Okay. I've got a 50 West American lager. It's made here in Cincinnati, just uh, downtown Cincinnati. It's about two miles from my house. Very, Very well. tasty. Awesome. As I said before, I'm going to have to come down and have one of those with you sometime. So, Mike, this is your second visit to the exchange. And Jim, this is your first. So what are your beverages of choice tonight? So I have a, a nice white wine, a Sancerre from France. That's uh, very nice. Very nice. Yeah. And I asked, I, I really like Michigan beers. Normally in the afternoon, I would be drinking beer. But um, because you guys asked what I would like, I said some Glenlivet 15. Nice. Uh, and I'll just make sure that I drink a lot of water with it. <laughs> Very well. Yeah. Well, Thank speaking you. of scotch, that reminds me of uh, <clears throat> the new co-host that I have uh, in the in the chair tonight. We shared some scotch at the World Dairy Expo together. Co-host tonight is Dr. Jeff Elliott. Jeff is a technical specialist here at, at Balchem. Jeff, uh, welcome to the Real Science Exchange. And, and most importantly, what's in your glass tonight? Well, in my glass, as most of you are aware, and even when I was in grad school with Dr. Drakeley, I was a big bourbon drinker drank bourbon all the time, drank it for okay. years. Then I felt like I'd went through them all um, and then been trying a lot of scotch. But my summer drink is actually tequila. <laughs> and this is a Casa Amigos tequila. And I think I got introduced to this maybe the first time I met Bill. We were at a conference together in Florida and uh, or in Florida, in Mexico. And one of my uh, friends introduced me to this, and it is really smooth. Mm. Everybody thinks, oh, tequila. But no, this is, this is not your college tequila. <laughs> it's, it's, it's good stuff. So. Well, I consume all my tequila mixed into a margarita, but, but I understand you, you drink that straight, neat. Right? Uh, I, I have it neat, but I, um, like Mike said, I've got ice in mind to stay hydrated. So. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, speaking of Jim, do you have any good stories uh, from when you worked with him down there? Yeah, I, th I think I've got several, but we have we have a mutual destruction pact, so I'm, I'm afraid <laughs> I can't share some of the best ones. Yeah. But yeah. I do remember one time when when he and his wife, Karina, were babysitting my my young boys uh, that one of my boys turned the water sprinkler or water hose on on Jeff's son, and that was that was a bit of a uh, uh, kerfuffle for a little yeah, bit. But yeah. there's lots of good babysitting stories. Yeah, there there were a lot. So one question I want you to uh, remind me if this was true. Did you tell me once that you were allergic to cows? I did. <laughs> yeah, I am. 
Yeah, I, I just I, find that intriguing. Yeah. Yeah. If I would if I would go out and work with cows and you know and have like contact with my arms on the hair or something, I would I would get a, a rash, an allergic rash. And and certainly being around them in a dusty situation, I would have some some allergic reactions. Yeah. Yeah. See, I just thought that was your excuse to get us to do the work. <laughs> well, it has some side benefits in the right in the right cases, but yeah. All right. <clears throat> Great stories. Hey, before we jump into our topics, let's hear from um, each of you. Which chapters did you work on? And then how did you become uh, involved with the committee? And Bill, let's start with you since you're the chairman. Well, we all had something to do probably with every chapter. I mean, some some people obviously are experts in subject areas and they, they led. So I, I contributed to the transition, not much to the heifer, because I don't know a thing about heifers other than they become cows eventually, <laughs> and a little bit on calves, um, and then plus some nutrient things. And uh, this committee, the way NRC works is, you know, they, they poll people, get they need experts, and I was on the last one, so they actually asked me uh, for names of people they I thought would be good committee members. And then at the end of that discussion, they asked me if I'd be willing to do it again. And I said, what, one time, but no more. The next time it's somebody else's problem. So, Yeah, very well. Jim, how about you? Yeah, I, I worked uh, primarily on the calf chapter and, and with input on several of the others, including the, the dry cow and transition and the, the fat chapter. Um, very little on the heifers. Um, and I was I was asked uh, to join the committee by by those powers that that be I guess. Would that powers that be be Bill? Yeah, I think Bill and Rich, yeah, reached yeah. out to me. Yeah. Yeah. Mike, how about you? Um, yes, also the, uh, the powers that be uh, asked me, and I worked mostly on the heifer chapter and the energy chapter. Also, intake chapter with Mike Allen. You know, I think uh, I, for years I had done some work with heifers. Um, I had a lot of interest in the energy chapter. I've talked about energy uh, for years and, and part of a grant on feed efficiency. And uh, had worked uh, with a, figuring out the last NRC in regards to a computer program that we had uh, 20 years ago called Spartan. Uh, but... Anyway, I will just say it was, it's been a lot of fun. It's been a lot of work, but it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you. Um, let's start off with uh, dry cows and transition cows. Bill, what are some of the key changes to that chapter, and what implications will it have on how we feed transition cows going forward? Well, of that chapter, you know, the dry cow part is easy. It's just straight requirements, nothing special, just meat requirements. But as cows get close to calving, then requirement models really don't work well. I'm just going to, because we don't know everything that these new, these nutrients do more than just act as nutrients. So there's still a lot, you know, we, we come up with requirements, but there's a lot in the text saying, you know, users should think about this and users should think about that. Um, updates, probably biggest update was changes in, in intake prediction, which again, for that animal it changes every single day substantially as it gets close to calving which is difficult to, to model um, so that would be the biggest one and then there's a really i think a good up-to-date 
discussion on all the metabolic problems uh, review. So there's a lot in the text that doesn't show up in the software. And it's, it's like I said, there's a lot in there that would help be a good textbook and be a good reference for a lot of people. I, I think one of the, the biggest changes that's, that happened was a result of the, um, the change in the way the energy requirements or, or energy content of the diets was calculated. And so the, the diets are going to look a lot higher in energy than maybe people that are that work a lot with dry cows and transition cows are used to. So I think that's going to be a, a big thing to get used to. Yeah, and, and that's a good point. People, you know, but the requirements also change. So it's right. At, it's a lot of that canceled out. So you just got to get used to new numbers. Right. The, the energy balance probably are going to look pretty similar, but the numbers are going to be a lot different. They got to get used to it. We think they're obviously more accurate now than the last time, but they are going to be very different. So can, can you explain that to me? Uh, uh, Jim, I heard you say that, and, and Bill, you just said that, that the um, requirements also increase. But as I'm thinking about it, the, the cows, um, they didn't change their requirement per se. Right. So just help me understand how that fits in. Actually, I think Mike would be the best one to discuss that one because that's yeah. I would just say that, that we would say that the cows did change over the last fifty years, uh, and we've been breeding for cows that mm. produce more milk and are more metabolically active, and they have higher maintenance requirements than they did fifty years ago, probably even yeah. 30, 20 years ago. So, yeah, you know, but how about the supply side? And on the supply side, uh, what we did is instead of using a cow fed at maintenance as our baseline, we used a cow fed at uh, eating at three and a half percent of her body weight as our baseline to predict the energy available from a diet. Now, of course, that in itself doesn't make a difference, but but um, when we we, we came up with projections for digestibility on different feeds for cows at three and a half percent of body weight. And now for a dry cow, because she's eating less, the energy content of her diet, same diet will look higher than it does for a lactating cow. You know, in the end, when we, when we made the equations, we weren't exactly sure what would happen to the dry cow, whether the, whether the energy supply would look higher or not. And, and in the end it did, but I think it's okay. Yeah, I think, you know, the, or the old NRC and the way, even the one before this, their base was a, a, a dry cow fed at maintenance, which is about for some of these nights at six kilos, you know, 12 pounds, 14. So extraordinarily low intakes, impractical intakes, but that was really the base. So, and that I think caused some problems. Um, another question I have along the dry cows. So in the beginning of my career, you know, I left Jim's lab in 1995 and went out into the industry, did a lot of ration work. And that's when the steam up rations were really starting, becoming popular. We used them for many years. And despite the lack of data to support them now, at the time, they were the best knowledge that we had. Um, and philosophically, actually seem directionally correct mm -hmm. so i guess my question is with those steam up rations then and what we know now how did those how did that 
philosophy maybe help or hurt us? Well, I might, I might tackle that. Um, I think that the, as you say, the, the idea, the concept is, is seems directionally correct. Seems, seems intuitive almost. I think that in practice, we didn't really get it right a lot of times because if you think about what we would trying to would be trying to do, we want to go intermediate to a far off dry cow into the the fresh cow ration, so that you're you're stepping up the cow in density. And I think that a lot of the trend early on with the steam up rations was people went really wild on this the steam up part, and so there was no real step there from the there was a big step from the, the dry cow to the close-up cow, but then not as much of a step to the, the fresh cow. That, that's part of the problem, I think. Um, the other issue is that the cows, we know now that the cows are becoming catabolic somewhere in that last few days before calving. And so we're kind of working against nature by trying to push this real high um, high energy density diet onto the cows when they're they're gearing up to to make the adjustments in metabolism that they need to to divert nutrients to the mammary gland. So I, I think a lot of the work that we've done since then has showed that a, a more a more moderate steam up approach or even even a, a single diet that's kind of in the in the middle can be just as effective and work with the cow better. I think, you know, there, this has been an area that there's just a huge amount of research that's been done in the last 10 or 20 years compared to before 2000. So I think we've learned a lot on how to feed these cows uh, and it's improved. Yeah. I agree everything with, with Jim said. And, you know, back then there was this idea that the rumen physiology or morphology had to adapt and all this mm -hmm. stuff. And that's been pretty much shown to not really be that important. So. Yeah. Well, the rumen adapts really quickly. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. We don't need these three and four weeks like we used to think. Yeah, and that, that German work that that was based on, the diets were almost entirely wheat straw. You know, there was just nothing fermentable in it. And so I think if we have typical diets that are going to have some corn silage and, and some other more fermentable feeds, I don't think there's an issue with the, the rumen papillae and the rumen my, the rumen tissue adaptation, there's still an issue of rumen um, microbial adjustment. But as Mike said, that I think things change pretty quickly. I think another interesting thing, if I could add one on that one, is that uh, with the previous versions of the NRC, if you fed a high grain diet versus a high fiber diet, you'd see a pretty big difference in the predicted energy supply per kilogram of diet. With this version, starch depresses fiber digestibility. And therefore, when you look at two diets, one high in starch, one high in fiber, the difference in predicted energy density or energy right. supply per kilo is not that different. And what starch really does is allow the cows that are really limited by gut fill, it allows them to eat more. But that's not a big problem for, for cows that are not producing a lot of milk around the time of transition. It's probably not gut fill that limits intake. It's something else. Hormones, changes in metabolism that are going to happen. Right. What about amino acid requirements? Um, what did you guys uh, 
change, if anything, with amino acids in both the dry cow uh, and the, the, the fresh cow? Uh, nothing, <laughs> because we don't, we don't know. It's that, that simple. We don't, yeah. uh, those animals are still on a protein or an MP basis, not an amino acid, because we just don't know. Yeah. So can, maybe I can expand on that or take another question. You know, going back to the previous question, that those close-up rations, and we don't have to adapt. Part of that is probably also because we've gotten better at feeding fresh cows. Even though you're, even though we don't know a lot of that, you know, compared to 20 years ago, we're we're doing things a lot better. So maybe my question is, you know, we don't know now. What do you think we for the next uh, NASM in 10 years when y'all all come out of retirement and, and riding that one? Um, <laughs> what a what are we going to need for those fresh cows? What, what kind of information? I'll, I'll start and turn it over. One is you always need a metric. What are you, what response variable? And mm -hmm. so far it's been pretty much, we feed a pre-fresh cow and we look at milk production. Is that, and there's a lot more to this than just milk production or lactation on, you know, calf health, colostrum quality, all these other things we never look at. So, one is we just got to develop good metrics to evaluate diets with, not just, it's much more than just maximizing milk production. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. I, I think in terms of the, the pre-calving diets, I, I think we've, as Bill said, we've made a lot of progress and I think can do a pretty good job feeding them. I think there's, there's probably getting to be enough information now that maybe a, a meta-analysis or two on things like colostrum volume and colostrum quality could be could be prepared in another by another 10 years in terms of the fresh cow i think we're still i think we're still defining things and in particular the uh, i think an area that's that's unanswered scientifically anyway is is the whole rumen fermentability and and how high a, an energy density you can go with the, the fresh cows? A lot of people are still worried about or nervous about pushing very high starch rations in the the fresh cow, but others will 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 show you great results from pushing cows harder than some of our recommendations would say. So, I think we still need more information on that issue of. Um, fiber adequacy and and energy density in the and fermentability in the the early fresh cow period and that relates to then back to the amino acid question about um, metabolizable protein metabolizable amino acid supply if you can get cows to eat a lot of energy you're going to make a lot of microbial protein so uh, that 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 helps out the the mp side and I would just add, I think how how diets affect the hormones that affect partitioning and intake is something we still have more to learn about, especially in that transition cow. Yeah. Bill, you were also involved with uh, the minerals chapter. Uh, anything change with minerals for uh, transition cows? Uh, yeah, a bit. And again, this is yeah, at the transition cow, minerals are much more than just meat requirements. And that's really what the NRC does is meat requirements. And you, know, you have the hypocalcemia issue, which is 
totally well not totally but not not meat requirements you have to feed them special uh there is a very i think good good in-depth discussion about ways to to minimize hypocalcemia but again we can't come up with requirements for doing that we say you know you can feed decad or you can feed low calcium you can feed calcium binders there's a lot of ways to get get there if if you just look at requirements i'd say um the only one that changed appreciably would be magnesium um that's because of both better date on absorption and some some maintenance requirement updates but in general uh they haven't changed much but again this is a section where you're thing you got to read the book and find all these little fine-tuning things that nutritionists need to think about that's not going to show up in the computer program you know speaking of magnesium i recall um in your presentation there was uh quite a bit of difference in uh of availability depending on the source can you expound on that just a bit yeah it's uh you know in the the last one i don't want to degrade that too much or say too much bad things because they didn't have the data we had there's been a since that came out i think it spurred a huge amount of magnesium research so we we had data they they could only dream about and they 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 came up with some absorption coefficients that ended up being quite actually quite wrong because of some calculations they made um, so the the ACs absorption coefficients in general are much better now again because we had hundreds of data points and they had you know five or six so huge data difference but it's still on these supplements um, magnesium oxide is primary supplement it's a manufactured it is not a mined mineral it's manufactured mm -hmm. and the way they manufacture it has a big effect on how good it is and so that that again is discussed and things you need to uh, think about the numbers in the book assume pretty good magox if but there's some pretty bad magox out there and that obviously would take different uh, supplementation rates than the good stuff so we don't have you know there's not in the feed library there isn't a thing called good magox and bad <laughs> magox they're just magox and users are going to have to adjust accordingly so and it is what? highly highly variable what accounts for those differences, Bill? Is it impurities in the in the resulting product, or or what is it? It's part of it is particle size, which is easier to quantify, and that. Mm -hmm. But the biggie is is you know they have to make this stuff and they have to cook it at a very high temperature. I can't remember, but 1,300, 1,400 degrees, for a very a specific time point to get drive off impurities and make that reaction. And if they cook too low or too too short it's no good if they cook too long or too hot it's no good yeah i was going to say i i didn't know it was a manufactured product but sometimes they look like little glass balls yep you know just very small tiny yep. glass balls and that's so been overcooked <laughs> and again there's some very good companies out there that make very good magox consistent and then there's some other ones that aren't so good and just you know find a good supplier that supplies good stuff and and stick with it so yeah, so Bill, you said size matters. Is is it fair to assume that smaller is better here? Yep, and for minerals in general, smaller is better. In fact, almost every nutrient smaller is better. So, All right. <laughs> gentlemen, before we trans transition away from transition cows and maybe over to calves, is there any big areas that we've uh, missed? I, I like Jim to talk a little bit about fat supplementation and and especially yeah. early early lactate. Well, you know, not many people do it to the dry cow, but early lactation. I, I get a lot of questions. Is should yeah. be fat? 
Yeah, the the older literature and, and kind of my my storyline has always been that we should kind of go easy on fat supplementation after calving because it it didn't appear like that supplemental fat would would suppress body fat mobilization and and so you just end up with too much fat in the system to metabolize efficiently. Um, some of Adam Locke's recent research, however, would would tend to point towards maybe some opportunities. Uh, more opportunities for feeding supplemental fat in the in the early fresh cow period. I think part of it is just we're we're talking about um, smaller amounts of fat in general than we were maybe 15 or 20 years ago. So um, it, it maybe is closer to what what I was recommending previously as well. But I think that there's there's um, you know, some, some better evidence from his studies and, and some of other people's that, that uh, a moderate amount of fat could be useful in the, in the fresh cow diet, as long as we're not going, um, staying in the, you know, 5% of total diet dry matter range for the amount of supplemental fat. Prepartum, again, I mean, there's some work done there, and I just, I just, I don't see much benefit in that. There doesn't seem to be any um, any specific uh, uh, metabolic signaling that fat in general gives us that would make it a, a more desirable source of calories than than starch or fiber. Um, the The work with the essential fatty acid products, I think, is is very interesting from a scientific standpoint, but it, from a practicality standpoint, I think there's still some issues with with getting the product into cows and, and whether it's truly cost-effective or not. Bill, uh, we've, we've hit about uh, every uh, nutrient uh, category except vitamins. Are there, are there any vitamins or vitamin-like compounds that you'd like to discuss relative to dry cows? Well, the only change was in vitamin E pre-fresh, and that was, you know, there's good data showing reductions in mostly metritis, but also mastitis post-calving, so... That was bumped up about a thousand units a day. Uh, there's discussion of, of potentially increasing vitamin A, but you know, one, one thing with NRC is they they actually expect us to have data to back up what we say. <laughs> and on the vitamin A, there's just not much data showing elevated pre-fresh does anything. There's discussion on choline, both pre and post. It's not a, uh, we don't give a requirement for that, but there is discussion. And there's also discussion on methionine uh, pre and post for, for things other than just amino acids or protein synthesis. So, so there's discussion on a lot of these things, but they're not explicit requirements. They're discussions. All right. Very well. Well, if it's okay with everyone, let's transition to calves then, and I'll start uh, with Jim. Uh, Jim, what are the big changes uh, related to calves, and, and um, what kind of implications will it have for feeding calves going forward? Yeah. Well, the calf chapter was, was extensively revised. Uh, we built a new model for predicting the, the uh, energy requirements and predicting growth from the, the, requ from the amount of feed offered that I think does a much more accurate job of predicting calf performance than the, the previous model did. So that's a, a big change. Um, we have an, a starter intake prediction equation or, or equations that will allow 
estimates of starter feed based on the amount of of milk that the calves are consuming and their their uh, size or age. Um, the mineral requirements have been have been better defined before the, the requirements were all just listed as percentage of the diet or percentage of a milk replacer or starter. And with Bill's help, we, we um, actually built requirements that are based on a factorial approach or, or adequacy of the uh, of the mineral. Um, few um, adjustments on the vitamins. Vitamin D was increased. Vitamin E was increased. Um, I think those are probably the, the biggest factors that were changed. And I think it, uh, it just in terms of implications, we're going to be able to do a lot better job of predicting what our calves are, are, are should be doing with a given level of feeding. Um, the, the text is expanded to to discuss more issues about rates of milk feeding and and um, we added some information on automated calf feeding and group feeding which was requested of us um, so the the text has been expanded as well is there any yeah. discussion on optimal growth rates sorry Jeff yeah there's there's not really a discussion of optimal growth rates per se I mean it, it's discussed of um, how how the amount of milk that we supply will affect growth rate. And, um, you know, in, in general, it looks like the more you feed, the more growth you get. Whether that's a positive long-term, there is some discussion on that. But as far as, as trying to set an optimal growth rate, we didn't, we didn't tackle that. Yeah, I wouldn't mind hearing your uh, maybe philosophical comment on this, but on the optimal growth rates, maybe from all of you, can we grow them too fast? And I, you know, and I think, I think of two things and it's more on the poultry side. Um, you know, I've, I've traveled to China a great deal and they're the chicken breast. They're not quite as large, but I, they're just really tender meat. Um, but also thinking about woody breast and, you know, we hear about that in the monogastric realm and it's potentially due to growing the the poultry too fast so do you think there could be some major disadvantages to growing our heifers too fast but i will add the caveat first and i'm not sure that's a problem here in the u.s historically because i think we've shortchanged them yeah all these years but if we were to ever get to that stage yeah it's from from what we know now it's hard for me to imagine that we would ever get to that point from a practical standpoint, at least. Um, you know, experimentally, we, we have calves that are growing more than more than two and a half kilos a day in the early milk fed period, individual calves. Whether that's too much or whether there would be some, some negatives that would show up, I, I don't really know. But my, my bias is that I don't think that the, the early growth rate is going to have any any negative outcomes, but I don't know what what do you think about that, Mike? Yeah, I agree with you, Jim. I don't. If you just think about, uh, well, I mean, we fed veal calves for years. I realize yeah. that they we slaughter them at a young age, but I, I don't really think you see soundness problems with their growth. No, uh, I'm not an expert on veal calves. I have, uh, you know, you look at beef calves that are right. nursing a, 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 a dam that produces a lot of milk you don't see a problem with soundness of growth. I mean, they just grow big and fast and they look nice. 
Yeah. So I, I don't think that feeding calves for rapid growth is a problem. I think it could potentially be an issue for older heifers, which we can talk about later, but I don't think it's a problem for calves. In fact, the data even says that faster growth is probably good, right? So for later yeah. milk production. So whether you need two and a, two and a half kilos, <laughs> I don't know if that's any better than one kilo, no. but... No, that, that's just individual calf basis, so I don't think we'd ever get there on an average. Huh? You guys think there's a, we get this question a lot too, is, is there a breed difference on on what you do? I know the rate of growth will differ, but do mm -hmm. you think you get the same response with jerseys with this rapid growth or increased growth as we do with Holsteins? Yeah, I think, I mean, there's, there's again, not a lot of research evidence, but um certainly what you see in the field is as people are making jerseys grow pretty rapidly too um the one the couple studies that are available you know those calves gained um gained pretty rapidly and and seem to respond in general in the same way yeah i agree with jim kind of changing directions just a little bit um was there any thought given to epigenetics while we're kind of talking about the dry cow and heifers and uh is there any discussion and if not uh, do you guys have any thoughts related to that there is a, a a couple paragraphs discussion in the in the text that talks about possible epigenetic effects um specifically related to different fatty acid profiles for the the dam and um and methionine uh, you know there there's i don't believe there's much on the choline information because that came out a little bit later in the process but um, certainly the general the general ideas general principles that it's something that's a, an emerging field it, that's kind of what we can say at this point is is um, you know there's there's a lot of interest in it but there's not a lot of data to this point we should have added that one to our list of things that they need to do for the next nrc yeah, we should have. That's right. Yeah. There'll be a lot more information by then. Yeah. Is that a long list, by the way? Just kind of curious. <laughs> Depends how much we keep drinking and talking. <laughs> <laughs> and whether we're going to be on the committee or not. One of our specific charges was to address future research needs. So every chapter has some stuff on what we think needs to be studied. So. Mm -hmm. Some chapters more than others, but that was our do one of our jobs. What other thoughts do we have related to calves? I think one of the one of the things that's a black box yet in the area of the calf that needs more research is the the whole series of changes that take place around weaning. So as the calf goes from uh, a, a milk and starter fed animal to solely a ruminant, there's tremendous changes that we know are happening in the in the digestive tract but we don't really know the time course we don't know the the implications for re requirements and that's that's a real black box but one of those things that the industry is probably not going to fund because it's there, there's likely not a, a good product or two at the at the end of the line there just just as an example you know and a calf absorbs about 50% of the copper she eats, uh, a cow, it's 5%. Where, when does it change? Right. Who, who knows? I mean, it's a just great example. No 
Jeff, what else do you have? No, I was just thinking about that last comment. So I just want to make sure I heard you right, Bill. So you're saying a cow absorbs about 5% of the copper that she consumes, but a baby calf about 50. Yep. So somewhere between, let's say, weaning and maturity, there's quite a transition. It would be, you know, once the rumen starts functioning, it'll be sooner rather than later, but okay. because the rumen is making all these changes. But again, is it a week after they transition or a month? And that, mm -hmm. that can have a big, you know, do we feed it like a calf and have very low copper because we assume they absorb a lot? Or do we feed her like a cow because we, and feed them a lot because they don't absorb much? And, and that has consequences to liver accumulation and, and other things. So I think we just took the average. I think that's pretty yeah, much think, what we did because we I didn't know what we, to do. I think we punted down that well, one. Yeah. I think yeah. the other thing that the next NRC will probably have more on is how to feed the calf in the first few days. Uh, the whole idea of transition milk. Mm -hmm. uh, there are specific things we could feed to enhance immune function, gut development in those first few days. Yeah. And I just want to make one comment about the calf chapter, which Dr. Drakeley did a lot of the work on the calf chapter is I think it has more references than any other chapter. <laughs> is that right? <laughs> it's, it's got a lot. <laughs> it's got a lot. <laughs> So yeah. it's a very thorough review. Yeah. Well, the whole the whole NRC, the whole book, as we're calling it, it's going to be like reading War and Peace, I think, for people. <laughs> so, so with all that, those references and that apparently then research that we've done, one thing that just drives me nuts in the field is that a farmer or a dairy producer will spend so much time and effort and money to select that perfect semen match for that cow. And then as soon as that calf is born, they forget about it. Yeah. Some it, farmers. Just, yeah, I should no. say that, but I was I tried to do research on a farm two years last two years ago or something that was a large farm. Uh, 60 cows calving a day. And I we were looking at a way to improve immunity in the first few days. Their, their calves were so well taken care of. I mean, there was no way we could, we did, we could, we had 60 calves per treatment. We couldn't show any positive benefit of anything, probably because they yeah. were doing such a fantastic job. Oh, that's yeah. two that's feet. Fantastic, yeah. Colostrum within 15 minutes, another batch of colostrum within the next 10 hours. Uh, so there are some farms that are really doing it right. Yeah, agreed. Definitely getting better, but. But there's still too many, like you say, Jeff, that that uh, are not doing the job that we know can be done. Right, right. And how do you fix that? I don't. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Don't know. Yeah. One last question on the on the calves. Um, any any discussion on the individual feeding versus the group feeding and how that might affect requirements? Yeah, there is there is a, a section in the text about that. Um, as far as how it affects requirements, probably not greatly. If you look at an individual calf basis, it's still, you know, nutrients in and, and so right. on. Um, but some of the, the other issues, the, the behavioral issues, the management of auto feeders, the environmental, um, 
issues, ventilation, and so on. We, we touched on all of those that are outside of the scope of nutrition per se, but certainly important to make a system like that work. And Jim, I have one final question as well is, uh, can you talk a little bit about the NASIM recommendations for minimum milk solid feeding rates to calves? Yeah, so we came up with a recommendation that calves should be fed a minimum of one and a half percent of their body weight as, as milk solids of their body weight at birth. So, you know, whether or not that makes a huge difference in the field is, is it's hard to say if, if you're looking at a, like a, an 87 pound calf, which is the average of a lot of people's um, work, it may, it raises the recommendation from a pound and a quarter to 1.3 pounds. So it's not a big deal, but if you're looking at a little heavier calves or, or take a little more broadly then it, it, it might, might mean that it's um, an appreciable increase for some people. All right, thank you. Before we transition over to heifers, uh, any final comments or thoughts we might want to share on calves? It's a, a big change. All I'm going to say is it was, it was probably one of the biggest revisions of every everything we did. It's major, major changes. Yeah. Very well. Yeah. And your predictions are, are really quite remarkable. Yeah, they, using the, the data set you have, you know, whether that all proves out in the field, I don't know. But for the data that you have, the equations do a nice job. Yeah. Mike, we're going to transition then to heifers. Uh, as we dig into that, maybe you can just kind of outline some of the biggest changes there and, you know, the implications it's going to have for, for feeding heifers. Probably the biggest change we made was that the composition of gain is based on data from Holstein's instead of data from growing beef cattle. Um, we've been using beef cattle as our reference animal for a lot of years, and now we have enough data from Holsteins that we could use uh, dairy data. Um, we increased the maintenance requirement for heifers consistent with what the NASM model in 2016 said for beef, what the NASM beef said about dairy breeds um, and consistent with what we did for cows. Do we have a lot of data in heifers to say from our side that, that we uh, looked at that, that really supports that? No, but you know, I think between the NASA model for beef and, and what we did for cows, I think it makes, it's a reasonable thing to do. Um, the um, intake uh, equations are definitely better than the last uh, model. Uh, they aren't in the heifer, the growth chapter, they're in the intake chapter, but they are uh, equations that are more recent and they include feed factors or at least uh, NDF. We, we made them so they're, they're size scaled, so they should hopefully work okay for jerseys as well as Holsteins. Uh, that's true for all of the, the growth chapters. Everything was uh, size scaled so that, that it should hopefully work for jerseys as well as Holsteins, although Everything we have is really based on Holsteins, not jerseys. There just is not, there's not much data with Holstein heifers. There certainly isn't much with Jersey heifers. Um, we um, simplified the size scaling system. And I think that was a, a big improvement. So, so it's a lot easier to understand how um, we expect the requirements to change as animals get as, as animals grow. 
And we just fixed a few problems in the last ones. For example, in the last model, uh, empty body gain was assumed to be nearly the same as average daily gain in a heifer, 95.6% of average daily gain, which we know that's not true. And so to, to start building a better model, at least we got to have some of our basic fundamental facts right. So, I, you know, will this make a dramatic change in how we feed heifers? I, I don't know that the diets are going to be that much different. Um, in fact, there will be times that I'm sure that they're, that is probably not going to work. Okay. We don't have enough data to say that this is going to be accurate, especially in all situations. But, but in terms of looking at relative changes, you, you add forage. What do you expect to have happen? You add uh, non-forage NDF. What do you expect to have happen? You add grain. What do you expect to have happen? How growth rate might change? I think it'll do a better job of that. Um, and we have a system we can build forward on. Do you have any thoughts or opinions on, we'll go back to the concept of optimal growth, right? We know that uh, first calf heifers even and even second calf uh, cows, they're still growing. And so is it is it more optimal to have them put on that, that growth uh, before calving? Or do you have any thoughts or opinions on that? Well, if so, regarding the optimal body size at first calving, there's not surprisingly there's very little data to say, very little research to, to actually say one thing or the other on that. The few studies, uh, and by that I mean there are studies that are correlations, but they're not causative. So there are a few studies that actually show that if you have heifers calve at a heavier body or weight, and I don't mean fat, I mean sound growth normal body condition, animals that come into their first calf being larger, closer to mature body weight will produce more milk than those that are smaller. Um, but of course, there's, there's costs both ways, right? So if you can get an animal into the milking string earlier, that's less time that you have her in a non-productive state. So there's that uh, in terms of profitability, I'm not sure what the answer is. Um, for and what we have in in the the uh, chapter is that somewhere around 82 percent of mature body weight is a good time to get her into the to the milking string so, you want to talk about optimal growth earlier in life that's a different question we do have a section on that so let's talk about that then so there is a section on optimal growth rates for heifers uh and the critical time is uh between probably sometime after weaning, I don't know when, and about the time of puberty or maybe breeding. It's not clear cut then either, but there's a time when the mammary gland is growing at an allometric growth rate. So it's growing faster than other body tissues. There's really good data to show that. Um, it's somewhat controversial about whether you can grow animals too fast during this time, but I think everybody uh, who does this work, uh, probably, even though publicly we sometimes disagree with each other, there's less of disagreement when we get together with each other. Um, and right now, there's no study that has shown that if you grow heifers faster than about 900 grams, certainly a kilogram per day uh, during that critical time period before puberty, after weaning, that you're going to get as much milk from them as a cow. Um, 
if they grow with proper, it's probably related to the fact that when the heifers grow really fast during that time period, they often grow too fat. Right. And that might be a bigger issue, but there's not a lot of data to say one way or the other, but it's probably when they grow too fat. So if you can get a heifer to grow nice and lean and she's growing fast, she might be okay. But in the chapter, we suggest that at least you use some caution when you do that, because we don't know. And I have friends who feed heifers who will say, oh, yeah, we can get them grow three pounds a day, you know, in that five, six month range. And so then they produce milk like crazy as cows. Well, sure. How do you know they wouldn't have produced more if you had slowed them down? I, we don't know. Yeah, and I got to believe there's a lot of variation depending on on breeds, right? And and there's more breeds than just jerseys. You know, 25% of our audience on our webinars, they'll come from Europe, and there's a lot of different breeds that they mm -hmm. use over there. So, yeah, I'm wondering how we get our, our, our arms around that. Do you, do you talk it, for about For optimal growth, we, I will just say that for optimal growth, we, we tried to put everything in perspective related to the mature body weight of the animal. So... Uh, I, I don't remember that that number off the top of my head, but we talk about the gain per day as a percent of mature body weight so that you, you're looking at a different number for jerseys than for Holsteins or for some of these other breeds as well. Did a lot of you said the previous data prior to this version came from beef animals? Yeah. So, so I almost laugh. It makes me wonder if that's why when I used, you know, when I used to walk those heifer yards and see those uh puberty to you know almost ready to calve animals they were so fat you know if we were using the beef numbers so now if we've got the holstein numbers is that the reason also for uh um the increased maintenance energy is there yeah so the maintenance energy is is higher for dairy breeds than beef breeds i think there's not much question about that uh, why, you know, perhaps because we've been breeding our animals to be really metabolically active and superstars, superstars at making milk, but yep. then they also have all the right hormones to grow faster too. Um, our animals don't put on as much fat. Uh, their, their composition or their gain is more protein and, and less fat compared to beef breeds. Um, so that, that's probably related to it. That's part of it anyway. In fact, you know, even with ours, uh, if we simply used the, the gain, the protein gain as our sole determinant of deciding how much protein to put in a heifer diet, uh, the protein content of our diets would be lower. We ended up putting in um, a minimum metabolizable protein to metabolizable energy ratio for heifers. And that minimum ratio comes into play for, for most of the heifers once you're past about four months of age, I think. The, the, there's data to support that, okay? There, we cite the papers uh, to support that in the chapter. Why might that exists well it's possible that that protein during that critical time of mammary development is doing more than just helping to support 
muscle tissues grow, right? Maybe it's doing something at the level of the mammary gland. We just don't understand that it's helping the gland get ready to be active cells that will someday be able to really uh, start to uh, turn into the cells that make milk. Mike, we were talking about um, research gaps previously. What do you think some of the biggest research gaps are related to heifers? And Yeah, so if we, we do list that in the chapter. And the, the problem with a lot of the studies that are in the literature is that they often seem to be missing some critical component that we really need to be able to put into our models. So maybe they do a good job of describing uh, growth, uh, and maybe even composition of gain, but they don't have anything about the composition of the forages. Uh, and the diets aren't well described. They might have been studies that were done by somebody who wanted to look at how diets affect future milk production, and they figured, well, it's not so important to, to put all the details in regarding the nutrition part. Uh, so it just seems like there are often holes in, in any study you find to be able to use this to really help build a model. And, and the problem is we don't have a lot of data to say what the conversion of metabolizable energy should be to net energy, net energy for maintenance, or retained energy, net energy for gain. Uh, we don't have a lot of good data to say what the ratio or what the conversion of metabolizable protein is to retained protein or net protein. And so we had to rely on either old versions or the NASM beef model or some combination of the two to come up with those numbers. And that's so that's the biggest hole we have. Um, and we really need more studies with heifers where all of the important information that goes into a model is put into the paper. And sometimes that means you're going to have, that researchers will have to fight with the editors because sometimes <laughs> the editors are going to say, why is this in there? And then the people need to say, because NAS, the next NASM needs it. And sometimes we don't know what the next NASM is going to want. So maybe we need to, you know, dairy, dairy science now gives us the option of putting in tables or information that just go into uh, an electronic supplement. And we should include that stuff. Yeah. Bill, Jim, uh, anything you'd like to ask Mike on this topic? I might just make a, a comment kind of back to the, the unknowns or, or things that we need better, more research on that we, we had hoped to make the calf requirements blend seamlessly into the heifer requirements, and they don't. There's, there's still a gap there based on the the two different systems where they come together at about 125 kilos of body weight. Um, and that's, again, just, it's because Mike's extrapolating back on the heifer end to the, the low rates, and I'm extrapolating up on the calf side to those body weights, and there's no real good data to make those connections. So um, that they're, they're still going to be a kind of a crossover for, for people at some point when you stop using the heifer, the calf model and start using the heifer model. Yeah, really good point, because when you get to that crossover period, you'll see the protein percent of the diet suddenly jumps up, as I recall, <coughs> uh, which I'm sure is prob is probably jumps up too much. So I'm sure the heifer model is probably wrong right there. 
One of the reasons there is that we put in a crude protein requirement. The model is really based on metabolizable protein. Right. And in the tables, it has a crude protein requirement, but that's pretty much irrelevant when you start to use the software. Uh, and probably in those younger heifers, the convert we used to con in the tables, we said CP is converted to MP with like 62% efficiency. And for those younger heifers, it's probably higher than that. Yeah, we used we used 70%. In yeah, that. so that's part of it. And maybe we should have <clears throat> dropped it from 70 to gradually to 62 as the right. animal got older. Right. But it's, you know, it's kind of a guess on how you do that. So yeah. we didn't. Very well, gentlemen, I just uh, finished my bourbon. So that, that means it's last call. And so what I'm going to do for last call is just kind of ask uh, each of you to kind of wrap it up with, you know, one, two, three things that uh, the audience should take away from the discussion this afternoon. And Jeff, I'm going to start with you. Oh, okay. Um, now, a great conversation. Appreciate it. Appreciate being on here. Um, a few things I took away, and we started with the term directionally correct. Um, you know, that, that's what I, when I did more nutrition work, that's what I always tried to do. I knew I wasn't ever spot on, but anytime I made a change, I wanted to be directionally correct. And that's kind of what I heard from these guys that we still got some changes we, that need to be done. We need more research, but we're, we're going in the right direction. So I think that's key. Um, I think also that the um, for the uh, last month of pregnancy, that the um, there was increased energy and protein requirements. So just putting more pressure on that cow, that everything that we can do for that animal is is key. Um, and then I like this uh, I like this last conversation about the heifers and um, and getting really closer, really being directionally correct with them, getting away from the beef side, um, having more Holstein data. Um, I, I think that's going to help a lot more than we realize. Yeah. Thanks, Jeff. Jim, what thoughts do you have? Oh, I, I think um, I, I'm, I'm proud of the calf chapter, the calf model, because I think it does a, a, a good job of predicting at least research data, and I, I'm anticipating that it's going to do a good job in the field. Um, I, I think it is directionally correct. Um, I, I would also point out, I didn't mention before, but the um, the requirements in the calf section are based actually on composition of, of gain data from slaughter studies with um, with Holstein and Jersey calves. So we're like like Mike's discussion on the heifers, we, we actually have good data now to, to base the, the requirements on for a typical, uh, typical growing dairy heifer or, or, or beef uh, steer um, based on these data. So I think the, the requirements and the, the conversion of nutrients into gain are, are much improved and I look forward to see how, the, how it works in the industry. Good. Mike? Yeah, I think uh, I agree. At, uh, I'm, I'm happy with what happened in the heifer chapter. Uh, I'm not quite as confident about how it will always work in the industry, and I'm anxious to see how that works because I know we had some, so just some shortcomings in the data that are available to us, but 
but I at least feel good that the composition of gain equations are now based on Holstein's and we have a, a platform which we can build upon. And Bill's a chair. I'm going to let you put a uh, final bow on this. <clears throat> well, on the transition cows, I just, you know, it's better than we've made improvements, but there's still a lot of art in feeding a transition cow. It's not all science and you can't just use the computer to feed these cows. And again, I want to urge people to read the book because there's a lot in there on stuff people should. It may not tell you what exactly to do, but it's going to tell you what to think about. And again, there's still a lot of unknowns in this, how to feed these cows correctly. There's a lot of ways to feed them correctly. And, and they just, again, use, there is a lot of art to, to feeding a transition cow correctly. Yeah. So there's a lot of different avenues we could have gone down today. Uh, a lot of great conversation. Unfortunately, we didn't get to everything. So, well, I'm going to just look forward to the next time we're together in a real pub. We're going to have to do this all over again. So, uh, won't have the empty glass anymore. So I want to thank you gentlemen for, for a, a delightful afternoon here at the pub. I also want to thank our loyal listeners for stopping by once again to spend some time with us here at the uh, Real Science Exchange. As a reminder, you can continue. we will continue breaking down the new uh, 2021 8th revised edition of the Dairy NRC over the coming weeks. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss any of the new episodes. If, if you'd like to pre-order a copy of the, uh, the new uh, NASM and receive a 25% discount, visit balcam.com slash real science and click on the NRC series for a link and a discount code. If you like what you heard today, please remember to give us a, a five-star rating on your way out. And also don't forget to request your Real Science Exchange t-shirt. All you need to do is like or subscribe to the Real Science Exchange. Send us a screenshot along with your address your shirt size to anh.marketing at balchem.com and we'll send that right out to you. Our Real Science Lecture Series of webinars continues with the ruminant focus topics on the first Tuesday of every month. Visit balchem.com slash real science to see upcoming events and past topics. And as always, we'll hope to see you next time here at the Real Science Exchange where it's always happy hour and you're always <laughs> among friends.